Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. The government in Myanmar was never really a democracy, but this week they made it pretty official, uh, seizing control of the civilian leadership of the country in a military coup, what is now officially a military coup, according to the U.S. government, and installing a general as the leader and postponing elections for at least a year, and who knows if they'll ever come back. Today on Worldly, part of the Fox Media Podcast Network, we're going to break down how this coup happened, why it matters, and what might come next. I'm Zach Beecham, here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. A coup only two weeks into the Biden administration. How fun. Uh, You know, look, this is certainly an early challenge for them coming into it. I just hope that they can approach it with the pep of that woman who was filmed doing an exercise routine outside of the coup. Like literally you can see armored vehicles in the background as she is doing a dance routine to some music. It's I, we on the worldly team have been talking about this for the entire week. It's like none of us can think about anything else because it's the most incredible video we've all seen. To the point that we were doing like shadow analysis, like, well, is it real? Is it not? Well, the shadow breaks. And then uh, BuzzFeed had a story being like, it is real because of satellite imagery and wherever they found where she was. Anyway, we'll link to it in the show notes. But it is incredible to watch this woman doing this aerobic exercise as, you know, military trucks are just rolling behind yeah, her. Yeah, we, we, we highly recommend that you watch this. But look, uh, the, the video is funny, right? And I'm, I'm glad that it exists. But this is... A really, I think, ultimately a very sad story, right? Because Burma or Myanmar, depending on which language you want to use, it was called Burma before the military government changed the name in the 90s. So opponents of the regime tend to use Burma. The government officially uses Myanmar. Um, You know, there was a real democratic experiment, or it seemed like it. It wasn't fully democratic. There were lots of safeguards in the Constitution that were designed to protect the military's power. But, you know, at one point... During the Obama administration, specifically, it seemed pretty helpful, right, Jen? Yeah. um, So I think we should probably just kind of back up and give like the basic outline here, right? So, so for decades, the military junta ruled Myanmar. Um, uh, Alex has a really great piece on this, explaining how you know there was kind of this ongoing toggle back and forth between you know the military rule and others trying to kind of gain power. But essentially, the military always maintained very solid control of the country. Um, And in response, you know, the international community, including very much led by the U.S., um, put the country under very strict sanctions, economic sanctions against the military rulers. And eventually they essentially decided that it was time to maybe try to get out from underneath those sanctions. And the military decided to move somewhat toward having a more civilian kind of quasi-democratic government They made some reforms. They allowed elections. uh, And eventually, this pro-democracy reformer at the time, who had been under house arrest for years, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, she was let out. She was allowed to run. Uh, Her party does really well. She is given the title of state counselor, which was a position created just for her, essentially to kind of rule alongside a, a president who is less powerful. So it was essentially Aung San Suu Kyi and her party ruling sort of alongside the military for the last 
well, decade roughly. And that's kind of the quasi-democracy that has existed until this week. Well, I want to make one thing clear and just just add to what Jen said, which is as part of that quasi-democratic reform effort, what happened was the military drafted a constitution that was agreed to in 2008. The main thing you need to know about this constitution is that the military members would get 25% of parliament, no matter what, no matter what the vote, and they would run key ministries. So no matter what, even though you had Aung San Suu Kyi and her uh, NLD, National League for Democracy Party, you know, in charge, nominally the civilian leadership, the military still held complete control. So think about it this way. Military is still in charge of the country, but Aung San Suu Kyi at all sort of run the day-to-day operations of foreign and domestic policy. They would bump heads, of course. What changed in this case is in March of last year, 2020, uh, in part because Aung San Suu Kyi has had so much you know, mandate for her democratic reforms, which she called for were amendments to the Constitution that would strip the military of its permanent seats in the parliament, of some of its control of the ministries, and the military wasn't having it. Uh, those amendments didn't pass because what the Constitution demands is any change to it has to have 75% or more of the vote. Well, that's tough to do when 25% of the parliament is the military. So they didn't change. And if anything, uh, in November 2020, Aung San Suu party gets this massive mandate. They win a ton of seats. And that led the military to kind of freak out because they were like, wait a minute. She's trying to ruin our control over the country. She's gaining even more popular support. We might need to do something about it. And the coup happened on Monday local time in Myanmar, hours, just hours before the new parliament, which would have had more members of the pro-democracy party in it. They were just about to sit. So there's your context. That's what you need to know about this. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty uh, sad stuff because it ruined at least, I mean, quasi-democracy isn't a democracy, but it's better than autocracy. And we've reverted back to the autocracy that, um, as Zach alluded to, the Obama administration pushed really hard to get them uh, to move away from. So I, I want to add another layer of complexity to this surrounding the figure of Aung San Suu Kyi, who we've discussed on the show before, because it's really easy, I think, for people just sitting at home to hear the story that we've been telling so far and be like, oh, this is democracy versus uh, a military dictatorship, right? Well, what a simple morality play. But it's more complicated than that, and and largely because of her, Right. She was a, a Nobel laureate in the 90s for her resistance to the military junta and generally seen as this figure of popular resistance. And indeed, she is very popular and has been for a very long time. But when she got a hold of power right through this state councilor position that we'd been talking about, again, created specifically for her, which I think is, is telling in a lot of ways, because the military didn't want her in the presidency. In fact, specifically excluded her uh, from that role. She acted in a way that significantly undermined her credibility as a democratic leader. And I, I think there are two really good examples that illustrate the problem here. The first is her treatment of the Rohingya minority, right? This was, you'll recall, uh, several years back, the Burmese military launched uh, what is most accurately termed a campaign of ethnic cleansing or genocide against this Muslim ethnic minority, right? And they they slaughtered people wholesale in an attempt to push them out of the country, created a huge refugee crisis, killed thousands, 
they did so in response to uh, some separatist activity from a group uh, nominally that's affiliated with the Rohingya or has draws from Rohingya. Uh, but the interesting thing is is the way that um, the state councilor reacted. She didn't condemn it, right? You'd expect her to. You'd think that she would be the kind of person who would say, this is wrong, this is bad, right? But that, that's not what she did. In fact, she vocally supported the military's actions, said they were conducting a counterterrorism campaign, even defended it in international fora, right? And you could say that's for political expediency, but some experts on the ground think that it's because she genuinely believes that the Rohingya minority is a threat to the ethnic Burmese majority. Ethnic Burmans, the Burmese is a nationality, Burman is an, is the dominant ethnicity group in Burma. She she seems to, in general, have a pretty anti-minority stance in politics. And that leads me to the second example, which is the way that she's handled elections, right? There have been significant exclusions in who is allowed to vote in these elections that have specifically blocked members of ethnic minority groups in large part from participating in the electoral system. So it looks like under her rule, because she's so popular with the ethnic Burmese majority and because she seems to see minorities as a threat to her political bloc, her control and power, and her ability to, to get what she wants in the struggle with the military, she ends up moving towards a system that is not only like really centralized under her rule to the point that people were worried about another kind of authoritarianism in the event that the military lost their power struggle, but also a very ethnic exclusionary one, right? And, and, and that was really concerning. And not to say that the military is justified in launching a coup against her. Of course, coups are bad. I want to be clear on that. But that this is not a, a simple black hat versus white hat story. Right? It's, it's really complicated in terms of how to understand the different allegiances and uh, issues at stake in the conflict. Yeah, I mean, I think that <clears throat> I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I know we're going to talk about, you know, what the Biden administration maybe can and can't do to address this. But, you know, that definitely began to complicate how the West um, and how the U.S. interacted with Myanmar, right? Because much of this, the attention that, that Myanmar got and the pro-democracy movement got internationally was because of Aung San Suu Kyi and this kind of, you know, figure of her as this stoic martyr who was under house arrest for years and years, who constantly, you know, advocated for nonviolent, peaceful resistance against the military junta, called for democracy. And she was this kind of global, like leading light and and this figure that the world could kind of rally behind. Um, and when her star fell because of her own actions, because of her refusal to, you know, like Zach said, not even just not denounce it and say quiet what the military was doing to the Rohingya, but to actually literally go in front of the International Court of Justice and defend the actions of the generals. Because of that, it it made it much more complicated for the world to support her. Because on one hand, supporting democracy is something that the U.S. and many Western countries and other countries outside the West, of course, very much want to do. But at the same time, doing that also meant supporting Aung San Suu Kyi, which also meant that she and the military were essentially working hand in hand to commit genocide uh, against an ethnic and religious minority. Um, and, and it's not just the Rohingya, right? There are other uh, ethnic and religious minorities around the sort of edges of the country. In the Central Plains, it's the ethnic Bamar majority. And then in the kind of mountainous regions, there's a lot of different ethnic and religious minority groups that are all 
you know, persecuted to varying degrees, perhaps none so much, you know, directly as the Rohingya, but still really bad things. And that's really obviously hard for the U.S. to support. So when it comes to things like, you know, figuring out what to do now, right? Like Zach said, it's not kind of cut and dry where you can pick the good guys versus the bad guys in terms of which political party or political figure to support. I think similarly, you know, kind of what we talked about last week with Alexei Navalny, right? The fact that you have a country where there is hardcore repression, there is no really open political space, then you end up having, you know, the the people who can break through and manage to challenge you know, the authoritarian structures of the military regime in this case aren't necessarily the ones you would actually pick if you had your choice, right, of people to support. But they're the ones who were there and who have the popular support. And so that's kind of this this awkward situation that the international community finds itself in. This is uh, such a common blind spot for U.S. policy, right? We, The U.S. government constantly tries to find and champion whoever the pro-democracy person really is. And look, it's Navalny in Russia, despite all his Islamophobia and, 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 and all that. And it's Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar, despite her hatred of the Rohingya. And, um, and so the problem with that is it is hard to formulate policy around that. Because unless all you care about is the democracy angle, which uh, it seems like the Obama administration did, in their mind, and, and this was a lot led by uh, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who, who was, you know, starstruck by Aung San Suu Kyi, mentioned what a hero she was to her, and helped push, basically turn, like, the, the, the ship of state to promote a democracy in Myanmar. And look, there were advances, like the fact that, you know, because of the sanctions that the U.S. had helped lead, the military did that quasi-democratic arrangement. Um, some rights were, you know, you have a civilian leadership, you have uh, some rights better observed, you have uh, internet companies flow in, um, giving people, you know, phones and, and connectivity, and that helps to democratize, small d. Um, there were genuine advances. That said, because of the U.S., the one of the most popular politician in Myanmar is someone who hates a lot of people in Myanmar um, and, and wants them dead. Uh, and it's hard for me to then call this a success, right? I mean, the, for the Obama administration, it was seen as a really big win to push Myanmar in this direction. And look, again, I will say, there are clearly some successes, but when this is the person you put in charge, when you've put all of your chips in this kind of basket and to have it backfire in this way and during that time uh, when she was in charge, it's a really bad look. I mean, it, uh, one thing I keep hearing from Obama folks who are still in the uh, who are in the Biden administration or in, uh, some outside of them is uh, they say, well, yes, we made our mistakes, but Trump administration didn't do that much in the meantime. And that's true. Right. I mean, they they passed up an opportunity to build sort of a global coalition to keep Myanmar on the democratic path. Um, that said, it's really hard to do when uh, Myanmar starts its campaign against the Rohingya in 2017 um, and continues. And we see who Aung San Suu Kyi is. What political capital would a Trump administration really have to kind of push forward? So this, to me, the original sin of all this is not only that the U.S. emphasized a democratization project in Myanmar um, under Obama, but that they did so because they put their eggs all in one basket, which turned out to be a pretty bad basket. So I guess, Alex, I don't know, right? This is so difficult. Was it really was it really fair to expect the U.S. government to anticipate that Aung San Suu Kyi was going to turn into somebody who would support uh, functionally a genocide, right? And that was going to turn into somebody who could be an autocrat, right? What happened in the early 2010s was the result of an effort, a conscious effort by the Burmese military to reform itself and reform 
the country, right? This wasn't a revolution in the sense of some kind of popular uprising that forced them to change. It was a decision, a strategic decision, that they could rule better and that the country would be better off if they reformed themselves and consciously limited their own power. This was a, a decision made by, by a group of reform-minded generals, essentially, right? And they, um, they had their own reasons for this. It wasn't just like they liked democracy. Uh, one of them was that they were increasingly worried about Chinese political and military influence in the region and thought that if they could democratize, Western sanctions would go away and they could build up their economic and military might as a counterweight to China and also get Western support to help, you know, block any kind of Chinese advance on Burmese territory. So, like, there, the stars had aligned for democratization at that point, right? The fact that in retrospect— it turned out to be a project that, I mean, I don't know if it's definitively failed, but it looks like it had failed. doesn't mean it wasn't worth the effort to try, right? And I don't know the extent to which this could have been mitigated by more active international diplomatic involvement or American diplomatic involvement specifically between 2016 and 2021. Uh, my guess is not very much, right? There's just, uh, people talk about like who lost country X, right? And there's actually a headline this week, who lost Burma, right? And- the U.S. doesn't lose countries, right? It doesn't have that kind of control over what happens in them internally, right? In this case, the specific dynamics of the military regime's thinking was amenable to pro-democracy efforts by the U.S. to help nudge them in a democratic direction. But after a certain point, like your foreign influence only goes so far and domestic political actors need to behave according to the rules of the democratic game and in ways that don't antagonize other domestic political actors and cause the process to break down. And neither the military nor, frankly, Aung San Suu Kyi in her really combative approach to the military, Vox alum Max Fisher has a really excellent piece about this in the New York Times on how she deliberately uh, tried to fight the military in ways that undermined the democratic transition – uh, you know, I, I just th that's not anything that you can blame American policymakers for happening. Uh, I guess I will to a certain extent. <laughs> um, I mean, I agree that like the U.S. did not lose Myanmar. Like that is, I, I think, overwrought. But I think when we look back to the democratization push, let's do either the U.S. knew how long Aung San Suu Kyi felt about the Rohingya or they didn't. And either way, that's a failure. Interestingly, it's the military that's more uh, anti-China than Aung San Suu Kyi is. China funds a lot of the the ethnic rebels around the country, and and um, if you're the Biden administration now, kind of a hard choice to pick. I mean, you can go the pro-democratization route, try to get Aung San Suu Kyi back, but she's more friendly with China, and that ruins your anti-China thing. Or you stick with the military, go against democracy, but you have a greater bulwark against uh, China. So that's always a tough one. And then the other is like, yeah, maybe the stars had aligned, but it seems like they conveniently missed that the Constitution was quasi-democratic at best. The military was still in control. It was still, and remains, obviously now, the most powerful entity in the country. And so, sure, you could have Aung San Suu Kyi as the state counselor. You could have uh, the NLD be a, the biggest party in parliament. But at the end of the day, it is not a democracy. It's a fig leaf. And so it seemed like they, the, the, there was so much hype about just getting her in charge missing the entire structure around uh, the way the, the country ran. Yeah. And I think beyond just like the structure and, and you know, I, I do think it's difficult, right? I, I, I kind of come down in the middle, right? It's difficult to promote democracy in places that haven't had democracy for a very long time and thus don't have a vibrant, diverse, 
you know, ideologically, politically, ethnically, religiously, et cetera, but a, a full kind of bench of potential leaders and politicians who can take over, right? You have one <laughs> who has managed to rally, you know, a huge amount of support. And it's so, you know, at, at the same time that you would say, you know, oh, well, we don't, you know, we don't really know her that well, do we? Um, you know, should we be careful here? Well, what, you know, what's the other option, right? Um, I think, <clears throat> you know, it's not like there are, you can say, like, let's call for elections and like, let's see who wins. Like, it's pretty clear what's going to happen. At the same time, I think there were hints kind of early on around uh, kind of 2011-ish that started to to show maybe some of the cracks in, in Aung San Suu Kyi's kind of uh, facade, I guess I would say. Um, you know, early on, she, you know, wrote and spoke very much about, you know, Buddhism and, and nonviolence um, and the ability of, of Buddhism and, you know, principles of love and forgiveness um, to be, you know, compatible with democracy and to challenge authoritarianism and was very much, you know, preaching the kind of message of nonviolence, very much following, you know, as she said herself, like in the mold of Gandhi and that sort of thing. But gradually, as she got, I guess, a little bit more powerful and closer to actually being in power, you started to see a little bit more, I don't know, honesty or if it was a change. Um, but there was one point to me that I think was really pretty stark, and that was in 2011. And she essentially said, quote, I do not hold the nonviolence for moral reasons, but for political and practical reasons. And to me... Yes, that's one statement, right? And she was saying that in the context of, you know, whether she supports her her supporters using violence to overthrow, you know, the military or to, to help her gain power. But that statement alone is something that, uh, yes, in hindsight, it's easy to pick that out. But it's something that's pretty stark to hear, especially knowing what we know now. And so I think part of the failure here is that you know, sort of path dependency, right? You get wrapped up in, well, she's our, you know, she's our winner. She's, you know, and kind of this lionizing of her as this figure and turned her into an icon rather than an actual political actor and an individual who has very clear, you know, she, she's not accidentally one of the most powerful people or at least, you know, has the most support, even if she's not powerful because she's currently being charged with, well, well, we can talk about that later, but she's under arrest. But, you know, I think there's a there's a a tendency to try to lionize these figures rather than treating them as raw political actors who will do the kind of sometimes dirty politics that are needed to get to the position they are in. And again, you don't become, you know, that sort of a an icon and that, you know, influential of a political figure without having a pretty clear mind for strategy and politics. And so I just feel like in that sense, I think there is a failure in this this inability to kind of treat her and, and other leaders we've done this with before as actual people with political motives rather than as as saints of democracy that we can hand over all these resources to and go, oh, you're fine. You know, you're, she's going to be the savior of this country. Let's support her. Um, and I think that's where the real failure often comes in. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what the future might hold for Myanmar slash Burma, uh, both in terms of how the world might react to the coup and, and what it means for the country itself. Exaggerations and half-truths aren't new in politics. But now, with AI, 
people can create fake videos of candidates to sway your vote. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and I've teamed up with technology expert and law professor Nita Farahani on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, for a three-part miniseries, AI on Trial. Our second episode presents the hypothetical case of a hotly contested Senate race that is derailed when the leading candidate is accused of using AI to enhance his performance and hurt his opponent. How are we supposed to know when the technology becomes very difficult to validate something as truth or lies? Do existing laws, policies, and government agencies sufficiently safeguard the political process? Political speech is so tightly protected under First Amendment that it makes regulating in this space a real challenge. And what needs to happen to protect democracy in time for the real presidential election in November? When our elections are so close, where it comes down to nail-biting endings, a few voters here and there can really lead to differences in outcomes. The episode is out now. Search Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been talking about the coup in Myanmar, and we've been discussing how the transition to democracy that started during well the, the Obama years in the U.S. started to fail. But but really, it's important to understand that uh, the, the dynamics that we've been discussing have been set in place many many years before even the current military government existed. You know, it's it's almost a cliche to say that colonialism did this in foreign policy, but colonialism kind of did this, right? This, the English government in Burma, well, I should say English and Scottish, because for some reason, the people who managed Burma were very heavily Scottish under uh, British rule, uh, had introduced Western style racial thinking and had used that, used this sort of ethnic thinking as uh, a tool, as a divide and conquer rule. It's very common in, in colonial uh, administration, but that also created a pretty um, pretty divided country when colonialism ended uh, to the point where there's been long-lasting sort of ethnic insurgencies in Burma. There's an incredible essay in the London Review of Books called Not a Single Year's Peace uh, by a Burmese scholar, Thant Mian Yu, and the title, Not a Single Year of Peace, refers to the fact that the country has been in some kind of conflict or another since 1941, since Japan invaded as part of the World War II hostilities between Japan and, and Great Britain. And that is astounding to me, right? During all this time, we presented it as if the main struggle, uh, at least in recent years, is between a democratic movement and an authoritarian one. But there are also all of these other different conflicts that are going on. Jen alluded to this a little bit earlier. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, different ethnic groups who have had their struggles with the government in different parts of the country. Well, now we're back to full-on military rule, right? And it just doesn't seem to me that the country is on any pathway to resolving this, which um, in in Thet's essay refers to as uh, the longest-running conflict in the world. I don't know if that is everyone's agreed-upon definition of longest-running conflicts, but, you know, it's it's been a really, really long time that people in Burma have been at war with each other. And this just does not seem to bring the country any closer to a resolution of these conflicts. Our, our, our good friend, uh, Jen Kirby, has a great piece on this, um, or on, on an aspect of this, which is the military coming back um, 
and, and taking full control will hurt the most vulnerable, the Rohingya and, and other minorities involved. And that's because, and experts I've talked to, they just keep saying, look, it has been since 1941, 1948, forever, um, just a pretty, you know, it's a violent place because there are groups that have been told to hate each other that just also just do hate each other. Um, and you have China funding a lot of these groups. You have regional actors funding a lot of these groups. And so there is violence throughout. Um, it make it, Myanmar is a is a unfortunately um, in this state of, of chaos. And the problem with the military coming back is if they have full control, if they don't have to have this facade of democracy anymore, they could go full hog, frankly, um, against a lot of these groups that it doesn't like. And so the chance for more violence actually is, may rise after this coup than not. Usually. Not usually, but sometimes coups lead to a moment of just like quick stability, just kind of everything gets coalesced and then chaos ensues. But in this case, the coup could incentivize the chaos. As you see people start to leave, um, you see some people want to rise up against it. You might see the military now have zero checks against its ability to to start fighting these groups. And so I, I fear that the level of violence and the trend of violence will proceed, perhaps accelerate in the coming uh, years plus. Um and it will be the Rohingyas and, and other more vulnerable groups in, in Myanmar that will pay the ultimate price. Yeah, I, I think that brings us to, you know, an interesting point um, and an important part of the conversation that I want to kind of dig into, which is, you know, what can the world do? What can specifically, you know, we're in the U.S. right now. So, uh, you know, what, what can the <laughs> we are fact check? True. Um, you know, but what can the Biden administration do? What can the global community do? And that's where I think, you know, it's actually we're running into a very serious challenge, um, which is that there isn't a ton that the U.S. I think can actually do. Alex, you wrote about this this week uh, about the, you know, what the Biden administration may try to do. Um, they're, you know, threatening to potentially put sanctions back on the country. Um, I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but, you know, during that kind of move toward democracy, during the Obama years, in response, they the the U.S. took a lot of those economic sanctions off as like a reward, I guess is maybe not the right word, but you know for for those you know taking those steps toward quasi democracy. But the problem here is that it's not like this happened the next day and they can just put those back on. The world has changed. Myanmar has changed dramatically since that time. You know, as we mentioned earlier, economically in particular. Um, you know, when those sanctions were lifted, as is often the case, uh, investment from foreign investment, uh, business ties tend to flood in, right? Because there's a new market um, that has been, you know, restricted for a really long time. And now all of a sudden you can do business with this entire country that was really, you know, difficult to do business with before. And so, you know, China has always had a pretty tight kind of uh, relationship in terms of economic, uh, you know, ties. Um, and they, you know, built that up even more. But so did other countries in the region, including U.S. allies like Japan and South Korea. Japan, South Korea, Thailand, Singapore are huge trading partners with with Myanmar now and have really close business and in some cases military ties. And that's a problem in the sense of limiting what the U.S. can do, because if the Biden administration tries to put, you know, really harsh sanctions back on the country, a lot of experts think, and I think this seems right to me that the U.S. allies like Japan and South Korea are not going to be super wild about that and not going to support it. Japan has been pretty clear about that already. 
And it's because there are business ties, like I said, and there's money involved. But it's also the fact that they think if that happens, then China will essentially go back to being the only country with with real tight economic ties and will just essentially dominate Myanmar. And so from both an economic standpoint, they don't want that to happen, but also from, you know, a broader geopolitical standpoint, if you're trying to kind of challenge Chinese expansion uh, and growing influence in the region, you know, pushing Myanmar to go, you know, hardcore back into the arms of China is not something that is particularly helpful. And it's not also really particularly promising for pro-democracy, right? It's not like China is going to be the ones who are going to be like, we're really going to push you to become more democratic, Myanmar, since that's literally not a thing China does, they do the opposite. And so I think that comes to the point where it's it's really questionable how much the Biden administration can even do and what can they do to, to push Myanmar's generals that won't end up potentially even backfiring and making things worse. Yeah, I... I genuinely don't know. And this this gets back to an earlier point that we were discussing, which is the the problem with thinking about things in terms of uh, losing countries and direct foreign influence, right? It's There are obviously levers of pressure that countries can use, uh, especially the United States with its, you know, dominant military, economic, and diplomatic position uh, to try to get other countries to change their internal politics. The problem is that those levers are often not more powerful than the incentives that domestic actors have to behave in the way that they want to behave, right? In this case, the military thought that Aung San Suu Kyi was going to overthrow them, like like fully overthrow them. And if you're the leader of a military dictatorship, generally speaking, uh, bad things happen to you when you lose power entirely and quickly, and you lose it without your consent. You there, There's a very high chance that you might get prosecuted or uh, worse. And so you want to head that off. There's nothing the U.S. can do or can promise them that is better than continued power in the place that you live and not being arrested by whatever government uh, replaces your government. So there is no way to outweigh their strategic calculus here. The question is what you can do to create incentives at the margins that might push them towards, you know, not postponing next year's election. Like right now, they've said, the military, that they're only going to rule for a year and then there's going to be elections again. Whether that's trustworthy is a completely open question. Or rather, I should rephrase, that is not trustworthy, right? You can't trust them to do that. Whether or not they will do it is the open question, right? It all depends on the internal incentives for the elite in the military regime. And that includes not just uh, a sense of, of personal threat and safety, but also the international arena. So it's not that the U.S. can't do anything. It's just that its power is somewhat limited. And the same goes to varying degrees for all of the other surrounding countries. I I guess one card that is in the favor of of sort of more pro-democracy countries is that the military sees China as quite threatening in a way that the civilian government didn't, as we've discussed so far, which indicates that they may be more amenable to some kind of deal with Western countries that helps mitigate the the anti-democratic consequences of the coup. I kind of see it the other way in the sense that the change context between the Obama years and now is that China is everything. It is in every policy. It is in almost every country's at the top of every country's concern list. And so if you're Japan, 
right? You want probably better relations with the military than the pro-democracy movement because you want someone in Myanmar or a group in Myanmar to counter China um, and to fight against it and not really let it come all the way in. If you're the U.S., I'll reiterate the point. If you want Aung San Suu Kyi in power again, you might struggle in keeping China out of Myanmar, whereas you have the military in charge, you might have a better shot at it. And this goes on for other countries, Thailand as well, of course. So the China looming issue um, is really kind of, I think, the most important part about this. That is the changed context. That is what is dominating people's minds. And I would assume that if you are walking the halls of Congress, if you're walking the halls of the State Department, if you're walking the halls of the Pentagon, um, they're going to say, yeah, it would be nice to have a quasi-democracy in Myanmar, but I'd really prefer to keep uh, China out and, and Myanmar more in our camp here. Um, and, and to add to what Jen said, the, the state officials on a call with reporters including myself, made pretty clear that they have, quote-unquote, very little, almost none, of its uh, funding going to Myanmar's government, a.k.a. the military at this point. So even if they, after calling it a coup uh, earlier this week, the U.S. will will curtail that, probably end all of its support, but that's very little. The the funding for civil rights groups and pro-democracy groups will continue, but that was always true. So it's only the sanctions and the assumption that there will be, you know, a multilateral, a global set of sanctions against Myanmar. Maybe the Biden administration is working on that. That is possible. Maybe we'll see it. But I, I struggle to think that they're going to care too much about it or put make it make them so strong because the last thing they want to do is give China the opening of making me and of putting Myanmar more in China's sphere of influence than it already is. Yeah. One last thing, you know, just to kind of tie it back to what we were talking about earlier, it goes back to, you know, again, one other really important thing that has changed since the, you know, initial Obama years of support, which is Aung San Suu Kyi and what she stands for, right? And so when it comes to, okay, well, we want to continue to support democracy in the country, well, what does that look like now? Like, are you going to continue to give resources and support politically, potentially economically, uh, diplomatically, to Aung San Suu Kyi, someone who is an apologist and defender of literal genocide, uh, one would hope not. But at the same time, okay, well, if not, then then who do you give your support to, right? And hopefully, we'll continue to give support to groups like the Rohingya, you know, and, and other ethnic and religious minority groups that are struggling. But they are not the ones who are going to be able to, you know, they don't have support to take over the country, right? The pro democracy camp is fundamentally Aung San Suu Kyi's camp. And so, you know, do they try to, you know, split her off and try to figure out ways to support, you know, more grassroots groups? I I don't know. But the problem is that there isn't a a figure they can rally around anymore because Aung San Suu Kyi has exposed herself as someone who is not the kind of ideal of liberal democracy that, that they originally thought. And so that leaves them again in a really tough position. Uh, I've been talking to some people and they have 100% agree with that point, Jen. And they're thinking that maybe U.S. strategy going forward um, will be trying to support, I mean, it's not just the NLD, right? And it's not just Aung San Suu Kyi. There are other pro-democracy groups in Myanmar. They're just not known. So maybe we're at the end of the Aung San Suu Kyi boom cycle and we're at the beginning of a new one. But uh, whether or not that really factors into the Biden team's plans, they have so many other things going on. And of course, that kind of effort would, would last multiple years and multiple administrations. Um, that is what I'm, I'm waiting to hear on. And, and I doubt I'll be hearing about that anytime soon. But, but the problem with this kind of strategy is that she's really popular. Yeah. No, no, right. She's godlike. Yeah. It's, it's not that uh, this, this is discredited her domestically. In fact, it, it's the opposite. And that's part of why it seems 
yeah, that she supported the Rohingya genocide is that that was a popular initiative, right? They saw it as defending against the, the Burman population, saw it as defending against terrorism, and they saw it as, you know, protecting the homeland. And there was some just pretty vicious anti-Muslim, anti-Rohingya sentiment uh, that was dominant there. And this, her getting out front on this issue helped her maintain her popularity relative to the military. So we're in a situation right now where there is a military coup, which is terrible, that aborted a democratic transition, which is terrible, but that democratic transition was being led by a woman who, like, for ideological and political reasons, seemed to support a campaign of genocide, which is terrible, and who remains extremely popular, which is terrible, and who likely would have pushed the country towards what looked like a kind of personalist dictatorship almost with popular backing rather than a true democracy in the event that she won her power struggle with the military, which is terrible. There's just, there's just no good option, right? And standing up your own puppet international opposition is going to be an extremely difficult task as Alex was just outlining. So would you call it terrible? I would call it terrible. I'm just, I'm just very not hopeful about the situation. It's awful. And um, it's particularly awful for the ethnic minorities like the Rohingya in Burma who um, have been most victimized by both the military and Aung San Suu Kyi. Yeah, one thing I will say just to end is that, you know, one option we often talk about, we've talked about this with Hong Kong and other places, is to, you know, enable more refugees to come into the country um, to, you know, flee persecution. And that's, You mean the United States? Yeah, into the United States, sorry, yes. And that's all well and good, and that's something that I think the U.S. should always do. At the same time, that doesn't solve the the core problem, which is that, you know, a lot of these people really would rather not flee, <laughs> would rather have either, you know, states of their own autonomy, have political participation, or just basically have any kind of rights and, and not have their villages burned. Um, and so, again, I think, you know, on the humanitarian side, there are things that the U.S. can do to provide aid. Um, I think they can, you know, provide, you know, hopefully resources in Bangladesh can push the government in Bangladesh where the vast majority of the Rohingya refugees are living in camps, uh, lacking a lot of rights, push Bangladesh to give them more rights. But again, that doesn't solve the core problem of the political and, and ethno kind of religious landscape that has dominated Myanmar for decades. And, and it's a really thorny problem. So we're going to leave you there on a very classic worldly downer note. Um, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all of her hard work in putting together our episodes every week, uh, especially given my slow home internet speeds, which I really need to install a new modem. Um, and I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly uh, wherever you get your podcasts.